Hello everybody and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast where this week we talk about episode 3 of WandaVision, I eat a bunch of snacks, we make another D&D recipe, the Muppet Show is coming to Disney+, and I wax poetic about one of my all-time favorite bands. That's right, this week we got a lot going on. Oh, I also tried a, a couple of new alcoholic beverages. Um, I just forgot. So, yeah, we, we drink some stuff, we eat some stuff, we eat some D&D stuff. Um, we talk about WandaVision. Oh, God, my computer's making noises. Shut up, computer. I don't need you. I'm doing the intro. Stupid, stupid, stupid fucking thing. There we go. Okay, and it's off. All right, cool. Um, yeah, just, just a lot going on, and this is a beefy episode, um, over an hour, it's, it's been a while since we've had one of those, um, talk about Arion, uh, later on, and, um, I really go into depth on that, that's like the last, like, 20 minutes of the podcast, um, it's me talking about a band, anyway, if you enjoy the Going Up Cast and want to support the Going Up Cast, please feel free to go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast, where you can become a patron, and get access to the movie commentary tracks, the uh, Pokemon Nuzlocke run and whatever other random ass faff I decide to put up there um, to make it a, a worthwhile expenditure for y'all. And any support over there means the world to me. We are doing remarkably well when it comes to the podcast. Turns out me reading these Twilight books is pretty popular. Um, and that's fantastic. So thank you all very much. Uh, if you're listening to this because of Twilight, well, hey, thanks. Uh, um, I'm in the middle of Eclipse right now and it's terrible. So... There's, there's that for you. Let us get into this wonderful episode of The Going Up Cast. It's very late where I am right now, but the news just dropped that the fucking Muppet Show is coming to Disney Plus in, uh, well, on January, not January, uh, February 19th. And this is really big news for Muppet fans, and I will tell you why. The Muppet Show ran for five seasons in its original runtime. Three of those seasons, the first three seasons, ended up on DVD, but seasons four and season five of The Muppet Show never got a home movie release in DVD format. What they did get were like collection VHS tapes that I had when I was a child. And this is why I know that those episodes have not gotten DVD releases because uh, shows like Bob Hope, um, guest starring on The Muppet Show, was not in the first three seasons. So I am stoked because this is the first time pretty much since it aired that you will be able to watch the entire Muppet Show from beginning to end. All of those classic fucking Muppet Show moments, those incredible guest stars, Many of whom will not be remembered in the fucking cultural zeitgeist that we currently exist in. Because there are some pretty obscure fucking guest stars for The Muppet Show. I am now going to look at a list and tell you some of these obscure guest stars. So, the first guest star for The Muppet Show was Joel Grey, who is a Broadway veteran. Um, was the first guest star on the on the fucking Muppet Show. Uh, Paul Williams wrote a lot of great songs, including an old-fashioned love song, and did the music for A Muppet Christmas Carol. So, in terms of Muppet lore, 
he's pretty important. Florence Henderson, who was the who was the mom on the Brady Bunch, I believe. Yeah, she was Carol Brady on the Brady Bunch. She was there in when her episode aired in 1976. I believe it ran from 76 to 81, I want to say. Uh, oh, let's see who else we got. Harvey Corman, classic comedian. Candace Bergen, another classic comedian. Uh, Phyllis Diller, a very iconic voice. Twiggy, everybody's favorite uh, model Twiggy, right? Um, she was also a singer, I guess. Um, is she dead? No, she's 71. Okay, Twiggy's still, Twiggy's still kicking. Good old Twiggy. Uh, <laughs> Bruce Forsyth, Vincent Price was the uh, the guest star for the for the final episode there. Um, and everybody knows who Vince, Vincent Price. George Burns, uh, Madeline Kahn, uh, Dom DeLuise, John Cleese was a was a guest star on the Muppet Show. You know, Goldfish and Monty Python. Uh, so Steve Martin was on there. Julie Andrews was on there. Peter Sellers, Elton John. Uh, Don Knotts, Cloris Leachman, Bob Hope. Oh, Bob Hope was in the second season. Am I fucking crazy then? Did I miss that? Fuck, I guess I miss Bob. I guess I miss Bob. Shit, I'm sorry. I misspoke. Zero Mostel, uh, who was uh, famous for being in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, um, as well as a couple of other things that he was he was an actor. Um, he is unfortunately dead. Roy Clark, the classic Roy Clark, uh, was there. Let's see who else we got. Loretta Lynn, classic country music star, I believe. Yeah, Loretta Lynn, still kicking. Uh, Raquel Welch was there. She's um a person. Alice Cooper, there you go. Fucking great episode that one. Chris Christopherson and Rita um, Coolidge were there as well. Harry Belafonte, what a fucking wonderful episode that is. Liberace is there. Um, Sylvester Stallone, Roy Rogers, and Dale Evans. Uh, classic cowboy actors. And then in the mystery seasons that I never saw ever, Dudley Moore was there in season four. Kenny Rogers was there in season four. John Denver was there in season four. Arlo Gunthery, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, um, Giuseppe, Giuseppe, I think is how you pronounce that. Dizzy Giuseppe. Yeah, the, the fucking trumpet player. Um, who else we got? Christopher Reeve, Superman. Superman's on the Muppet Show. Linda Carter, Wonder Woman's on the Muppet Show. The cast of Star Wars uh, is on the Muppet Show. Andy Williams is on the Muppet Show, who was a, a very popular uh, singer. Um, I believe they also did a couple of Christmas songs that like I'm fairly aware of. I can't tell you which ones they are, but I, I, I definitely know. Uh, Andy Williams. Alan Arkin from MASH. Carol Channing. Diana Ross. And then the fifth season had Roger Moore, James Bond, Brooke Shields, famous for being Brooke Shields, Paul Simons, famous for being a pretentious songwriter, uh, Joan Baez, famous for being an amazing songwriter, Linda Ronstadt, famous for being Linda Ronstadt, uh, who is also a songwriter, Carol Burnett, who I imagine is going to be fantastic on The Mub Show, Johnny Cash, uh, Gene Kelly, Gladys Knight, Buddy Rich, Mac Davis, Shirley Basie, and the, I guess the final episode of The Muppet Show would have been episode, looks like 20, there's 23 there. Looks like, up oh, 24. Roger Moore was the, was the final guest star of The Muppet Show. Uh, they ended with James Bond and that was it. So I'm very excited to watch all these fucking episodes and they are. They're pretty good right up until they add um, Robin to the cast because Robin served as space filler 
for the Muppet Show. And whenever they didn't have enough to fill out a whole show, they would have Robinson on a log and sing a song really slowly. Um, and that shit just irritated the ever living crap out of me. So yes, I'm very excited to rewatch uh, the Muppet Show and see all of those classic great episodes with all those classic great moments. Oh my god, I'm so excited! Let's move on to the next thing of the podcast. Another recipe from the D&D cookbook come and gone. This time it was Archon the Krills. Half, like, five spice halfling chili is how it was labeled. Archon the Cruel, of course, is Joe Manganiello's uh, D&D character, which I say that like it's a thing, and that's because it is. Archon is uh, pretty pervasive in uh, D&D lore. Um, they were in Critical Role. They have their like own presence in like official D&D books. Archon is, uh, is pretty well known. Um, and so he got his own kind of chili. It was your standard, like, ground turkey, um, bean, onion, chili affair. Uh, and I'm not a, a dab hand, or, um, I, I'm not unfamiliar with, uh, chili recipes. So, what I basically did was a, a weird mixture of the, the recipe from the book and, uh, what I ended up doing. Basically, I got all the ingredients that was said in the book. Um, along with a couple of different ones. Like, it only lists using kidney beans in your chili, which I'm sure is fine. I like having a variety of different beans in my chili um, to provide, like, color and size differences. So I ended up using a can of kidney beans, a can of black beans, a can of white chili beans, a can of normal chili beans, and uh, a can of pinto beans. Um, I used all of those beans in my chili. Um, And I used a mixture. I, like, cut all the liquid in the can of beans in, like, half. And then dumped all of that into the chili, um, augmented it with a little bit of like vinegar. Uh, there was a can of tomato puree in there as well, um, which provides kind of body to it. Uh, a pound of ground turkey, shit ton of spices, things like um, allspice, uh, cumin, paprika, uh, cayenne, a little bit of fennel, uh, and then some herbs. I had some basil in there. I had some thyme in there. I had some uh, oregano in there. Uh, let all that shit stew for like good 30 minutes, um, 30, 45 minutes, I think overall, uh, a whole white onion or a whole yellow onion actually. And, um, seven slices of bacon. And so I microwaved the bacon at a time. You know, you could cook the bacon in the pot and then use the rendered bacon fat to like flavor the stew. Um, I didn't do that. And I went with the microwave because I wanted to avoid setting off the fire alarm of which I have a bad habit of doing. Um, that's why I tend to avoid doing things like that. Uh, so I did it in the microwave and then I left it like partially unrendered. So I did like a little bit of rendering in the pot, but not too much. Um, it was mostly cooked by the time it hit the pot. And then, uh, I sweat the onion for like 10 minutes and then added some garlic cloves. I think I did three crushed cloves of garlic, um, which I can't taste in the final chili. So that was all pointless. And then, uh, I added the tomato puree and let that cook down until it was less acidic. Um, added a little bit of vinegar. Um, and some brown sugar at that point to kind of balance it out. And then I added in my beans and then I stewed, stirred all that together. Then I added the turkey raw. I just put in the, the raw turkey into the chili. Um, and then I let the chili get up to 165 degrees, um, which cooked all the turkey. And then I uh, just let that shit simmer. And then I added all of my spices um, and some salt and pepper. And I boiled it down. Oh, I also added two serrano peppers because I like my chilies to have a decent amount of heat to them. 
Um, and I let those stew in there as well. And um, it's one of those, it's a it's a heat where it's like, it doesn't hit you right away, but it's after the chili is like out of your mouth that it starts to burn. So it's a really good heat and it got me all sniffly. But it's really good. Um, I'm, a, I'm a real big fan of it. I think the chili recipe in the book is going to lead you to a really good pot of chili. And then you can start to mess with it. Um, if I didn't already feel really comfortable making chili, I wouldn't have messed with it. Um, but I, I wanted to do it my way because I also don't have a Dutch oven, which is what it recommends. I just had a, um, I actually used a, like a tall um, saucepan, not a pot. Because I wanted it to be wider for quicker evaporation of the water to make it like a thicker chili. Um, and I've got leftovers for days. I probably can have another like seven to eight bowls of this stuff, um, which is going to be awesome. So really, really happy with how that turned out. Um, yeah, so we'll see what recipe I, I pick out of that thing next. Uh, but for now, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. You'll remember a long time ago, I got a box of snacks called Universal Yums, and it was a box of snacks from all over the world, and it is now January, it's a whole different month, Joe Biden is president, and I've got a new box of snacks here. So let's fucking crack this open, see where they're from, and what we have to taste test. Whee! Looks like we are going to the Netherlands. Wow. Never been there. Uh, that's awesome. Of course. The, like, I've been to fucking two European countries. The fucking England and the Netherlands. So, of course it's the Netherlands. It comes with a little book. I'm not going to read that because I don't want to be spoiled on what the snacks are. We're just going to grab a snack, pop it open, give it a shot. So, first snack up is called Roca. R-O-K-A. The original cheese biscuit. Mini cheese crispies. Uh, these are Gouda flavored. Which, if I'm honest, I don't really know what that tastes like. Apparently, serving size is the entire bag. Not very complicated ingredients. It's got wheat flour, gouda, cheese, vegetable fats and oils, and salt. May contain some sesame. All right, well, let's open this little bag of cheese crispies. Eh. Eh. There we go. It smells like cheese. Oh, they're adorable. They're, they look like, um, I don't know how to describe them. Like little crackers, I guess. Smell like cheese. They smell great, actually. Um, mmm, oh my god. Oh, they're like dissolving your mouth Cheez-Its. Oh, these are great. Oh, this is a problem. All right, well, I'm going to eat all of those. Um, we'll set that aside for right now. I just ate chili. All right. That's fantastic. I like that. I'm not a big candy person. They always insist on giving me just tons of candy. I'm not a big candy person. All right. The original Gummy Cadillacs candy cars, yummy, take a taste drive. So they're little gummy Cadillacs, and they come in three flavors. Strawberry Pink Wedding Car, Black Current Purple Sedan, and Cherry Red Cadillac. I hate cherry. I hate cherry, so we're going to try to go for a strawberry one, because that sounds more my, my speed. Um, they have the same consistency based on touch as a uh, fucking um, Swedish fish. And I suppose they do look like Cadillacs. Smells smells like a fruit candy, fruit gummy thing, so I'm just going to nibble a bit of the end of the car off because I'm not eating this whole thing. Ah! Yeah. 
It is your standard gummy car. And I'm actually, I'm not even gonna eat the little piece I did because it's one of those things where it'll take like 50 minutes to chew and it'll get stuck in my teeth. I'm just not a fan of it. It tastes fine. It's just super not my, not my jam at all. At all in the slightest. I'm just not a candy person. I'm much more of a chocolate person than I am a candy person. All right, well, let's get the other candy out of the way. Licorice and fruit gummies. Cool, 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 cool. Sure, let's just, let's just do that. Um, looks like they come in a bunch of different flavors and they're like these weird half, half band things where like half of it is black licorice and the other half is a fruit flavor. Um, exact same texture. Like, I'm not even joking. It's the exact same gummy worm style thing. Smells like ass because it's black licorice. I'm just I'm just gonna fucking lick this one and then throw it out. So, uh. yeah, I mean, lemon and black licorice, they don't really go together, and it smells like an ashtray. So I'm just gonna throw this out. <laughs> nope. Not wasting calories on that bullshit. All right, let's get back into some good stuff now that we got that horrible nonsense out of the way. So this is um some bolletje, the gem mengid mengid chocolade. So the exact same um we had we had a bag of these in the Christmas ones actually. We had these spiced cookies um before. These are the the tiny spice cookies that tasted like Teddy Grahams, except this time they're fucking wrapped in chocolate. Which hell yeah, let's go. Oh. Hmm. Mmm. Oh, I'm eating this whole bag too. They taste like chocolate teddy grams. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really good crunch. The chocolate's not too overpowering. You can still taste all the spice with a hint of chocolate. Oh, hell yeah. That's some good shit. Here's the biggest item in the bag. Bio-organic hand-cooked chips, cheese onion flavor. Thick cut potato chips. Cheese onion flavor. What cheese? Is it more Gouda? Will it tell me? Ingredients? It's all in fucking Dutch. Uh, oh, there it is. Uh, ingredients. Potato, sunflower order, corn, onion, natural flavor, contains milk. It, it doesn't tell me, it doesn't tell me what kind of cheese, cheese and onion. All right, well. I'm not a big potato person, potato chip person. Um, I I can't tell you just thinking off the top of my head what a fucking cheese and onion chip tastes like. So this is probably gonna be a whole new culinary experience for me. They're fairly thick cut. They look like Lay's. All right, here we go. Home. Um. They taste kind of savory, but they don't. Tastes like anything, really. Well, there we go. Um. Yeah, okay. Hmm. It's weird. I do get the hint of cheese. I can't tell you what cheese it is. The best way I can describe it is that it tastes like cheese. Like if somebody distilled the essence of cheese and put it on a potato chip and you went, yep, that's cheese, that tastes like that. Exactly what kind of cheese? I don't know. 
The closest approximation I can come up with is like cheese whiz or um, like nacho plastic cheese has that kind of feel to it. I got two more things here. One of these things is something I'm very familiar with, um, which is usually best served warm. Um, and that is a stroopwafel. And stroopwafels are these two um, very thin waffles um, that sandwich uh, caramel filling. Um, and these are usually pretty strong. The The idea behind a stroopwafel, um, or at least one of the best ways to eat a stroopwafel, is that you let it sit over your morning like tea or uh, coffee uh, because the biscuit is larger than the rim of your mug and then the steam of the uh, liquid would heat up the stroopwafel to uh, a really tasty standard. So, um, I've only had these like locally here, so it'll be curious to see how this is different, but I'll take a, take a bite out of one of the stroopwafels. There's like two massive ones here, so I'll... Yep, that's a true problem. Predominant flavors are cinnamon and caramel. So, if you like caramel and soft cookie biscuity things, then you'll like a stroop waffle. They're very good when done right, and these are these are done right. And finally, there's a thing in here called the yum bag, which. Um, as we're searching the world each month uh, for the best yums to bring you, we often stumble upon smaller finds that are big, crazy on flavor, but small in size. This bag is loaded with those discoveries. Okay, so there's even more shit to eat. Alright, well, then let's crack open this yum bag. Yum bag. There's no need to feel down. I said yum bag. Put yourself on the ground. I said yum bag. There's no need to be unhappy. Yum bag. So there are two things in here. They're both candy. I'm not eating these. Something called Napoleon, which looks to be a pink hard candy thing of some persuasion. And then what looks like fucking warheads called Dr. Sour and they're all watermelon flavor. So it's just more hard candy. I'm sure they're absolutely bursting with flavor. I refuse to put these in my mouth or in my body. So there you go. That's what's inside the yum bag. Damn, I thought those were going to be truffles because they felt like truffles, but they're not. They're hard candies. So big lot down on that part. Um, God, I'm going to give the winner to the chocolate covered cinnamon biscuits, which are fantastic. Oh, there's white chocolate ones in here too. I'll try one of those. Still good. Still good. Oh, there's milk. So there's milk chocolate, dark chocolate and white chocolate. That's really fun. I did not notice that ahead of time. So, A plus for those. Um, yeah. One, two, three, four. Four out of five, six, seven items are good. Like the the cheese onion chips are good, and the cheese crispies are good, and the waffle is good. I'm just not a big candy person, and that's what all the rest of it is. It's all just different types of candy. So... But I do like all the other crunchy, savory, chocolatey things. A plus on those. Oh, this is such a fun thing to do for the podcast. Let's move on to the next thing while I eat all these snacks. Alrighty. It is time to do one of my all-time favorite things, which is try alcohol. So I've got two tiny bottles here. 
I just went to the liquor store and I got um, I was re I was restocking, so I got some of my classics like uh, Glen Meringue Ten Year Whiskey and uh, Bellini Caribbean Cask Fourteen Year, brand new bottle of that, which is my go-to standard. Um, but I also got a couple of new things to try and to expand my knowledge on, and I've got two of them here in front of me. These are airplane bottles because one of the best ways to try new alcohol is to only spend like $3 to do it. So these were like dirt cheap little airplane bottles, which are, um, I don't know how many fucking milliliters of alcohol this thing is, but it's not a lot. It's um, oh, 50 milliliters. These are, these are both 50 milliliter bottles. Uh, we are going to try this one first, which is Grange, uh, Grange Stone. I thought it was Granger Stone, but there's no R, so it's Grange Stone. Which is, um, it kind of, for me at least, this one kind of popped in out of nowhere. Um, it is imported, um, and through Stanford, Connecticut, but it is produced in Scotland, particularly in Ayrshire, Scotland. Um, it is a Highland single malt Scotch whiskey. It is bottled, matured, and distilled, or distilled, bottled, matured, and bottled in Scotland. This has a rum cask finish, double maturation. Matured in specially selected white oak casks and finished in premium rum casks. Um, the reason I'm hesitant on this one is because it feels like they're really trying to push it. Um, like every time I go to Total Wine, I see like a bunch of bottles of this stuff. It is everywhere, which part of me thinks that maybe it's either brand new or it's not very good. Um, and they're trying to get rid of as many bottles of it as possible. So I got a tiny bottle of it, so we'll see if uh, it is worth the stock level that they have at Total Wine. And I'm not sponsored by Total Wine or Grangestone. Therefore, this is an honest goddamn opinion. I will say that the fucking bottle is impossible to open. There we go. All right, let's give it a schnifter first and see what we got. Okay, well, it smells like whiskey. It's the best I can say for it. Actually, on the snoop, it smells, it smells pretty good. So I'm gonna try it straight here. I do have a glass of ice here, but I'm only gonna use that um, for whichever one of these I actually enjoy, as I will I will drink that one first. So, bottoms up. That's not bad. It's young. I can tell it's young because it's got a bit of a burn to it. Not nearly as smooth as some other whiskeys I've had, but flavor-wise, it's not bad. Almost nothing interesting about the, the the palette on it though, like no, it just tastes like whiskey, and a sharp one at that. It's okay, it's okay. It 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 hits me like cheap whiskey, which I'm not a big fan of. It it has a really strong alcohol flavor, and honestly, it feels kind of um. It just tastes really young. Like, this thing's probably only aged like a couple of years at best. It does not tell you how many years it's aged, which means it's probably under 10. Um, and it's just got this really sharp burn of alcohol, but no, like, it's okay. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Jameson's a little bit, which is fine. Um, it's it's a good go-to whiskey if you just want to get drunk, but it's just like, ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't even think I'm going to finish that, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't think it's good enough. So, there's my review of that. Um, now let's move on. 
uh, to something that I just realized is fucking hilarious. This is Paul Masson, Grande Amber Brandy. And if you don't know who Paul Masson is, Paul Masson is the focal point of the hilarious Orson Welles' smashed off his ass uh, California champagne commercial. Uh, California, California champagne made by Paul Masson. So apparently he made brandy as well. I don't know anything about brandy. Um, except I, I learned a little bit today while I was shopping because I was also looking at cognac. And apparently brandy and cognac use a similar aging um, grade. So VS means, I think it means very special. Um, and that means it's aged, I want to say two years. VSOP means very special old pale. Uh, and that means it's aged at least four years. And then XO means it is aged at least six years. This has none of those things, which means it's probably not very old, and the bottle's made out of plastic. So, I don't want to, you know, say one thing or the other. I've also never had brandy before, so this is going to be a brand new experience for me. In fact, I'm going to use a palate cleanser here of some water. Alright, that terrible whiskey is out of my taste. Let's give the brandy a schnifter. I don't smell anything. Maybe, maybe vague hints of fruit and a little, little sniff of alcohol. It doesn't smell like anything. Maybe it's all in the taste department. Let's just, let's give it a try. Brandy, here we go. Well, I like it better than the whiskey. It's got a, it's got a bourbon-y vibe to it. It's like somebody melted vanilla syrup into whiskey. Very sweet, sweeter than whiskey. Um, it's kind of thicker. It's definitely got a more of a syrupy consistency to it. Not much. It's not like Jägermeister, but it's definitely got some legs to it. And what that means is like, you know, like if you swish um a drink in a glass, and you'll see like it leave like a, a like a, a streak. Like especially with like whole milk, you'll see like whole milk like coat the side the inside of the glass. It has legs. It it has like staying power, um, and so this has legs. Like when I drink it, it it coats the inside of the 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 the, the neck of the bottle. It's okay. It's not blowing me away. It's got a very syrupy consistency to it, um, which is fine. I mean, if that's what you're into, it feels like this would mix really well with things. Like, it almost tastes like a cream alcohol. Like, like fucking Irish cream liquor or something like that. That's what it reminds me of. Um, so if that's your jam, then fucking go for it. Um, I don't really feel like drinking either of these bottles. So I'm probably going to get, like, another another type of, of drink here um, for my night of recording that I've got ahead of me. Um, but there you go. There's a... Oh, no. There's, there's two things tried. I don't think I'd recommend either of them, to be perfectly honest with you. There are far better whiskeys that I've had. And um, as far as my entrance into bourbon, or brandy rather, um, not impressed. Although perhaps Paul Masson is terrible brandy. I have no idea. Uh, it was the only brandy I saw in Airplane Bottle. So that is why I got it. Um, cool. I'm going to go get something that I know is good. And uh, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Episode 3 of WandaVision has come and gone. And if you haven't seen it yet, I apologize for all the spoilers. 
Um, but I, I can't talk about this episode without really kind of speculating. I say spoilers. I have no fucking idea what's happening. So this next segment is just going to be pure speculation on my part. Because um, I refuse to do any research because that will solve the puzzle. And I'd rather try to figure this out on my own. So we're in the 70s now. We're knee deep in the 70s. Um, Brady Bunch as fucking hell. Can't can't tell me that isn't Brady Bunch. I recognize the fucking house. Brady Bunch. Um, so this episode mostly deals in terms of plot. It deals with um with Wanda's pregnancy and uh the 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 birth of her twin children, uh, who are named Tommy and Billy. Uh we get a little bit more of Geraldine, um, who I really like as a character. Um she seems to have a bit more going on. Um, and then we, uh, had a little bit of Herb. Uh, I thought the commercial was good. Um, I, I can't remember his name. I, I don't even think he has a name. Um, the guy with the big mustache that looks like, uh, like Ross from Friends' like second cousin. That guy? Fucking great. I love that guy. The, from the first episode, he's, uh, that guy's the best. I, I can't get enough of that guy. I want more of him. Um, so that's pretty much it in terms of plot. That isn't, like, overarching um, problems. So, previously, I theorized that this was a, like, a pocket dimension style alternate universe that Wanda had constructed because she couldn't deal with the grief of Vision's death and everything was fake. But that doesn't make sense because episode one, somebody was witnessing it. And this episode gives us a bit more of a hint. So it's not a pocket dimension. What it appears to be is a large-scale holographic um, environment that is acting as a sort of maybe not prison. It's really unclear. It's it's real. It's it's happening and it's real. I think is what we're led to believe. Geraldine is probably some sort of agent or or like sleeper cell spy that goes into Westview, which is the name of not only the town, but the the complex that has, has like, these, these holograms and, and like, fucking shit um, to encase Wanda. Um, I'm going to just say Wanda because Vision's dead. So, but he, he operates on his own and interacts with people who I previously thought weren't real, but Geraldine is, it seems, um, because she exits the the fucking um, set, for lack of a better term, at the end of the episode. She gets flung out of there. Um, Envision is acting like under his own power and is kind of starting to unravel the mystery on his own. Um, and if it's a real place, do they rebuild Vision? Is that even... I suppose that is technically possible, isn't it? Because the stones... No, Captain America returned the stones. Unless Captain America fixed Vision? Because what happened to the Mind Stone? 
He did, he just put them back, right? Maybe he fixed Vision. Um, why would he do that? I never I never considered that before. I'm struggling to remember what the fuck happens with the Mind Stone at the end of the um at the end of everything. Um, but he returns the stones. So like the Aether goes back to fucking uh like Asgard, right? Um. The, the time stone returns to like Doctor Strange the soul stone goes back to Volmir or whatever the fuck it was called uh, the power stone goes back to uh, Glenn Close the um, other fucking stone but maybe, maybe he used the mind stone to rebuild vision that would that would be that would be nuts if the reason Vision's alive again is because of Captain America? Fucking Jesus. Alright, so, again, total speculation. I have no evidence about any of this. But it seems like this organization, S.W.O.R.D., which I'm still really confident is a goddamn organization. They, we keep seeing the S.W.O.R.D. It's gotta be S.W.O.R.D. I don't remember if S.W.O.R.D. are good people or bad people, but maybe, like, after the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D., S.W.O.R.D. rose up, you know, to kind of take that, that mantle... But then that begs the question, why? That's the that's the missing piece of this puzzle. I I can I can put a lot of puzzle pieces on the on the field, but I can't see the image. There's no there's no sense of motivation, especially because it seems like we have conflicting forces working on Wanda, right? If Geraldine works for Sword, who seemed to be running the whole show, then the voice on the radio asking who's doing this to you, Wanda, is probably a third party that that wants Wanda to realize that what she is in isn't real. But it really does seem like Wanda is perfectly aware that what she's experiencing is... Well, I mean, it's real in that it's a physical place that has been designed for her, but it's still fake right and it's weird because if it's a real place then how did she experience nine months of pregnancy in an episode you know how do you bullshit that how do you fake that and have wanda believe it because wanda keeps fucking with vision so he doesn't realize that shit's fake so she knows shit isn't real and that's why she threw geraldine out wanda knows what the fuck is up she just doesn't want to admit it or face it or something like that. So how... It's... It's an ambitious show. And it seems to be going in a really ambitious way. But it is absolutely one of those things where I will sit there. And once this show is done, I'm going to rewatch it. And if it makes sense. And all the pieces fall into place. Then rad. But if it doesn't. Then there's a problem. Because if you have contradicting information, right? If my theory is correct, then all of the people they've interacted with are real people in this, like, Enviroscape. Whether or not they're agents of S.W.O.R.D. or prisoners in their own right, I'm not entirely sure. It might actually be a combination based on what the doctor said. You know what? It's a small town. It's so hard to escape. You know? We've really got to look at what they're saying to try and figure this out. 
They might, Wanda might not be the only prisoner here. I still have doubts that Vision is real, but he has to be because he's interacting with people on his own. Unless he too is an incredibly powerful construct, but then I question the physical contact. He picked somebody up. Unless that person's also fake. And then where's the fucking, where's the line drawn, you know? What is this, Westworld? So, yeah, there's stuff like that. Why was it in black and white? Why is it a sitcom? I know what my theory was before, but that seemed more like a coping mechanism for Wanda than anything else. It might still be, but it's a really bizarre way of trying to get information out of Wanda, whatever the fuck, I don't know. There's a couple of things we do know based on what happened in this show. This shouldn't surprise anybody. The show takes place after Age of Ultron. Wow. Well, of course, because Wanda and Vision are both there. So that makes sense. But in a show where I have so little to grasp onto to try to figure out what the fuck is happening, because the events of the last piece of Marvel media, second to last piece of Marvel media, says that one of the main characters of this show is dead, I kind of have to find some basis to ground myself. So I don't know. Also, it's interesting that Wanda's accent only comes back when she remembers her twin brother. It's, I thought that was interesting. Um, so, I don't know. Outside of this show being a goddamn jigsaw to try to figure out, the acting's okay. It's kind of bad, but it's also sitcom stuff that they're doing. So, you know, it doesn't have to be amazing. I absolutely loved the aspect ratio transition at the end of the episode. When it went from fucking, like, four by six or whatever the hell that is to like widescreen and the whole thing just flows i thought that was gorgeous <laughs> i loved that so much it really the show has an incredible budget and it and there it seems like they're using it really really well so um i think that's great what is the purpose of the stork why was it immune to wanda's magic i have absolutely no idea is Wanda even using magic? Or is it all just holograms and technology and bullshit? Like doing things for her. I don't know. What happens if Vision just like flies straight up into the air? Is he going to break through the field? You know? I mean, I don't know. It seems like there was a lot in this town, but how big of that complex could it really be? My guess is that it'd be like a... um. Picture like a fucking 360 degree treadmill and that wherever Wanda and Vision are, that is like the center of town and then it's like accurate for like maybe a quarter of a mile in any direction, right? But then if like Vision needs to go to work, then the treadmill moves within the, the, the fucking envirosphere and becomes like his downtown office, right? But it still contains, which means like his neighbor houses are no longer there. But then when he goes back home, then the whole thing shifts again. It, like, pivots on a globe, and then um, he, he can be home. But that begs the question of how they can both exist simultaneously in two different parts of town. Maybe there's, like, a fuzzy line in between, and it's, like, half and half or something like that. I'm intrigued and very confused and cannot wait to see where this goes. And I still know in the back of my head, I actually forgot this other bit, Randall Park from Ant-Man and the Wasp 
is also in this show. How? How is he in the show? He and Darcy have to be on the outside. But are they working with S.W.O.R.D. or this mysterious third party that there may or may not be? It is a mystery indeed. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So recently, I've been listening to one of my all-time favorite bands, uh, and that is Arion. Um, But it occurred to me a little while ago that I've never really gone into, excuse me, I just ate breakfast, gone into depth about like what that band really is and why I like them so much. So Arion has existed for, oh gosh, it's going to be a little over 30 years. Um, by my reckoning. And it is a truly ambitious band that kind of pays off in a big fucking way. And it's it's a really unusual band. To date, Arion has performed live one, two, three, four times. Um, I mean, it's it's a couple of times per thing. You know, they're 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 events. And the reason Arion are event-based performances and that they perform live so rarely is because it is essentially, it's basically just a dude, right? Arjen uh, Lucasen, um, or RN, uh, depending on how you pronounce it, um, is, is, is one fucking guy who's responsible for most of the lyrics... Um, most of the guitar work, most of the keyboard work, most of the bassist work, the the orchestration of all the songs. It's basically his brainchild. And he is... He's got to be up there with, like, some of the best multi-instrumentalist musicians of all time. Almost by default, because of how successful these albums are. It, it It's beggar's belief that it's one fucking guy. First album came out in 1995... Um, so it's not over 30 years, it's it's 25, 25 years, 26 years, I guess. Um, am I doing that? Ma- yeah, 26 years. Um, the band's been around, which doesn't sound all that long. Um, but the final experiment came out in 1995, and it sets up the story. And it's really that, that sets off the whole fucking thing. Because what is so wonderful about Arion is, A, most albums are dual albums they're enormous in length they average about two hours long and most of the albums with the exception of a few um tie together in a massive narrative that spans billions of years and i know that sounds daunting but let's let's get into it a little bit so essentially what the story is about is the fall of humanity um to a technological um ai dystopian nightmare future and in a, in a last ditch effort to save humanity stories of humanity's future were sent back in time through a process called time telepathy this is all from the fucking album where it was received by a blind minstrel named arion who retells the stories and that's what the albums are, is is the, the minstrel's warnings of the future. And in terms of the the canon of Arion, 
That future isn't too far off, which is kind of the terrifying thing. Um, 2084 is is the proclaimed year of uh, mankind's extinction, according to these albums. So, you know, we got we got a good 63 years left. So fucking enjoy them. Um, if I'm very lucky, I will be alive to witness 2084, and I will fucking listen to that song. So. That's the overarching story of, of Arion. And there are some incredible albums that focus on this. The Final Experiment is the first one. Um, and the Final Experiment refers to the, the time telepathy sending back of the stories to try to save humanity. And then you've got Actual Fantasy, which is um, a much smaller album than the one that came before it. It has... Some incredibly classic Arion songs on it, though. And that came out in 1996. And then 1998 was Into the Electric Castle. Which, depending on who you ask, is probably a lot of Arion... Or Arionauts is the is the term for Arion fans. Probably a lot of Arionauts' favorite album. And it's arguably his best. Into the Electric Castle, even though it came out in 1998, it, it has this really core... 70s vibe it was all done like analog you know you can feel it you can sense it with the the way the guitar sound and the synthesizers were the old school synthesizers that were all analog making these incredible noises um and it, it plays like a like a b-movie sci-fi adventure you get eight dudes um or eight people from all walks of life uh one of them's from the future one of them's from the scottish highlands one of them's from Egypt. You get all these characters together. And there's this overarching narrator um, who is one of the Forever, uh, which is a group of people that were formerly people that escaped um, from the machines. I'll get more into detail into this later. Uh, but they escaped from the machines and went to a brand new planet to start over. Um, and in their travels... Uh, and the um, imbibement and blood transfusionness of a substance known as liquid eternity, they achieved immortality. And Into the Electric Castle is one of the forever trying to reconnect with what it means to be human because it's been so long that they pull eight people out of time and put them through a series of challenges. Like a B-movie sci-fi adventure, you know. And um, throughout the adventure, some of them ascend and some of them die. And it's just really fucking strong storytelling. Um, and it's excellent. It's it's a phenomenal album. I love this album so goddamn much. I flew to the fucking Netherlands to see this album performed live. It was incredible. I fucking loved it. And John Delancey's narration really kind of clears up a lot of shit. Which the original album doesn't really. I love the narration in the original album. But it's not super clear what the fuck is happening. So if you want to know like what the actual plot of Into the Electric Castle is, listen to the live album version with John Delancey. His narration really fucking makes that shit crystal clear. And it becomes almost like a musical at that point. It's insane. Also, at this point, I would like to mention that one of the great things about these albums is the ensemble vocal cast. Most albums have anywhere between 10 to like 18 different vocalists taking on different roles in the album. So when I say there are eight people drawn from all lengths of like space and time, that's eight different vocalists from eight different bands 
brought together. And they're some of the best vocalists in the world. Bruce Dickinson sings on some of the songs. Russell Allen sings on some of the songs. Tommy Karavik sings on some of the songs. Um, Anit Van um, Giesenberg, I, th- I just butchered that, but she sings some of the songs. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, Floor Jansen from Nightwish sings some of the songs. Just, I could go on and on and on and on. Just an incredible roster. James LeBray from Dream Theater sings on a bunch of albums. Um, Michael Mills from um, Toe Hider down in Australia is one of the best vocalists of our generation. He is he is woefully underappreciated, but fuck me, that dude can sing and sing well, and he is also an incredible instrumentalist. It's beggar's belief. All right, next album, Universal Migrator Part One and Two. This one really sets up the uh, like the the before time, and when I say the before time, I mean like the fucking beginning of the universe. Like, the scope of these albums is absurd. But it, it sets up the beginning of the universe and introduces a character known as the Universal Migrator, which is the first soul. Um, and then that soul spawned all other souls. It's a really fun kind of cosmic idea of the beginning of the universe, and it's it's wonderful. Um, and that's the album where we get Bruce Dickinson's um, song, Into the Black Hole. And, of course, he knocks it out of the park because he's fucking Bruce Dickinson. Um, from Iron Maiden, in case you didn't know that. And that came out in 2000. The next album took four years to make, and it's called The Human Equation. This one kind of caught a lot of people off guard because basically what it is is somebody gets into a car accident, and he's in a coma, and all of these emotions are are yelling at him, like love and anger and hate and envy, and all these, all these guys are just fucking screaming at this dude for being a weak-willed piece of shit. Um... And over the course of the album, it's revealed that this dude's best friend, who's talking to him while he's in the coma, uh, fucking cheated on the coma dude's wife. Like, they were together for a bit, but it was like a momentary blip, and she feels super regretful and all that stuff. And then you learn about the coma guy's, like, uh, upbringing, where he was abused by his dad, and his mom was, like, super fucking depressed, um, and all this shit. And then at the very end of the album, it's actually revealed... That this is a, a simulation run by one of the forever, once again to um, connect with like its its human side, um, and the last words are of the album are like emotion I remember, um, and it ties into um, into the electric castle. It's all fucking super goddamn brilliant. Um, it's fucking wonderful. So into the electric castle and the human equation are what I like to consider like side adventures, you know. They're incredible albums, and they're some of my favorite of all time. But in terms of the overarching plot of the Arion um, discographic universe, uh, they don't really add a whole lot. They're just like these these supplemental adventures to kind of support the forever. 01011001, which is binary for the letter Y, um, came out in 2008, four years after The Human Equation. And this album is basically about the forever. It's about them leaving the planet Alpha to go to the planet Y, which is a water planet. They they sink to the, the bottom of the ocean, and that's why we get songs like Beneath the Waves and all that stuff. Um, and they are combating the simultaneous event of them becoming immortal, whilst also fighting just like an absolute metric fuck ton of robots um, that are trying to, you know, wipe out humanity in a I have no mouth and I must scream kind of way. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. And it also has 
like a song on here that I consider to be damn near perfect, and that's the sixth extinction, which is the last song in the album. It's like twelve minutes long. It's fucking fantastic. Um, vocal performances in this album are great. You've got um, fucking oh man, I'm blanking on his name. Shit, Jorn. Um, Jorn Land uh, is in this album. Hansi uh, Kirsch from Blind Guardian is on this album. Um, the the guy from Opeth is on... No, the guy from Opeth is in uh, The Human Equation. The guy from Pain of Salvation uh, is on this album. Uh, and then a bunch of other fucking amazing vocalists. Um, Bob Catley is on this album. Um, I, think, I think that's his name. <laughs> fucking just incredible. And then you got Timeline, which also came out in 2008, which is the first and two-day only... Um, well, not really. Um, it was the first compilation album of, of Arion songs. Which is weird because it's so... It's such an album band. Like, you really need to listen to these albums in their entirety in order to get the entire story, you know? Um, and this album actually does have a song that I've never heard. Um, and it's called Epilogue, The Memory Remains. I haven't heard that song yet. I will after I'm done recording this bit. But it's on there. It's on there. Um, so there was that. And then we got The Theory of Everything, which was the first album outside of the Arion canon. This album is purely standalone. It does not tie into the grander narrative that Arion has set up. And this album is all about a guy who um, is disconnected from the world. He has trouble relating to those around him. Um, he doesn't quite uh, he doesn't quite get it. He doesn't know how to like socially interact. And so he's trapped inside his own head. And he's fucking brilliant. Um, and, it, he, and his dad, who's played by Mike Mills, and the, the, the son is played by Tommy Kervik from Camelot and Seventh Wonder. So, right off the bat, we've got two of the best vocalists of all time, like, fucking belting it out in one album. And it's goddamn amazing. Um, Christina, Christina um, Scabia, um, Sabia, from Lukina Coil is on here as well. As is Marco um, Haitala, who used to be a member of Nightwish before he left, like, three weeks ago. Anyway... Um, it's all about that guy, and his dad is trying to find this this unified theory of everything, this uh, this theoretical concept that all of reality can be boiled down into a single equation, um, which is a real thing that people are trying. That is, it's a real theory. Like obviously, nobody's found it yet, but it's a real concept that people are trying to determine. Um, and so the dad gives the the kid like fucking drugs to help him focus. Um, and they work, but then the kid starts to hallucinate, and the dad feels super guilty, so he kills himself, and I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's, it's really fucking good. Um, you should, like, you should just listen to that album. Um, it's also, like, 40-something songs, it's like 42 songs, but each song is like two to three minutes long. Um, very much requires you to listen to this album without pausing between the songs. It needs the flow. Because when it flows like that, there is, like, zero differentiation between when a song starts and when a song ends. It all ties together. It's basically just one enormous song um, for, for that album. And then in 2015, we got the first Arion live performance, and it was called The Theater Equation. And it was The Human Equation performed live for the first time. Um, it's a very good live album. I believe there's a DVD as well. Really solid. They got most of the original cast to come back, save for a few people. Um, but it's excellent. 2017, 2017, uh, a year or two after I really started listening to these guys, we got The Source, which is probably, 
it's got to be up there amongst my favorites, to be perfectly honest with you. I connect really strongly with this album because it was the first album that came out when I became an Arion fan. So it's like my first album of this band. I have like the yearbook over there, which is this enormous fucking book that has like eight CDs in it. Um, and also all the lyrics and like behind the behind the making of the album and all that stuff and a bunch of pictures and things like that. It's wonderful. And the source is a prequel to the to the whole thing. So the source is all about um, humans on the planet Alpha realizing that the robots are taking over, and so they need to fucking bail ship. Um, and they all leave except they bring like this AI guy along with them, and along the journey to the planet Y um, near the star of Syrup, they. Um, ingest the liquid eternity and slowly become immortal. And while they're doing that, the um, TH1, which is the name of the the android that they're traveling with, um, is slowly like fucking roboting it up to wipe him out. And he's he's like he's worried about his own salvation, you know, because like he's the last robot basically. And he's like wondering, you know, once these humans are immortal and they're talking about living without machines, I'm a machine. What the fuck are you going to do to me? He starts asking those sorts of questions. Um, worrying about his own fucking salvation. And the album ends beautifully with the song called March of the Machines. Um, and if you listen to 01001101, or whatever the fuck it's called, um, the Planet Y album from 2008. If you listen to that one first, by the time you get to the March of the Machines, you'll hear like the exact same um, starting sound effects from that 2008 album. And they just plug in and connect, like, perfectly. And it's fucking incredibly. And it's, it's like, oh, God, it all fucking loops. It's fantastic. Um, the source was just fantastic. 2018, the next year, was the second Arion live performance. And it was called Arion Universe. It was a bunch of singers from all over these albums. A lot of original vocalists, some brand new ones that had never sung on Arion albums before. Just a blind of people coming together and doing basically a greatest hits album um, where they sang just songs from all over the place, including the source um, and all the way back to the beginning. And then a couple of songs from some live pro from, from some other projects that Arhan has done, um, like Star One and The Guilt Machine and stuff like that. And it's a really great live album. I've listened to that live album a billion, fulfilling bajillion times, just straight into the ground. And it's it's fantastic. Then in 2018, we also got Into the Electric Castle, the 20th anniversary remix, um, which is very good. Uh, it changes some subtle stuff, but not too much. Um, I still prefer the original album because I'm one of those old school motherfuckers where it's like, the original album was better. Um, but if I really wanted to listen to the Electric Castle, I would listen to the Electric Castle Live, which came out in 2020. And that was the concert I went to the Netherlands to see live with John Delancey doing the... The narration, bunch of the original cast came back, save for like two to three original members, I think. And um, their replacements are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Simone Simmons from Epica was there. Um, John J.C. Uh, Kilpers uh, replaced, fuck, can't remember his name, but he plays the Barbarian. Um, since the original dude didn't want to do it, um, which is totally fair. And it's a, it's a tremendously amazing live album. Um, and then at the end of the song, there's like... Or at the end of the album, there's like a whole bunch of other fucking songs from shit they've done. Um, and that's that's really cool. Uh, so I'd recommend listening to that entire like three-hour fucking album. The final album to come out from Arion, or the most recent album, I should say, because like I said, this band is under 30 years old. I would be stunned if we never got another Arion album. 
um, is Transitus, which is the second album to fall out of the Arion lore. And despite my love for Arion, it's also my least favorite. Um, it, for some reason, the narration in this album is more overbearing than it is in all the other ones. Instead of them being like vague hints about what the fuck is going on, the narration before each and every song tells you exactly what the fuck the song is about, like to the point of using some of the same lyrics, and it kind of ruins the entire album because like they're just kind of it's the difference between showing and telling, if that makes sense. You're being told the story like explicitly rather than having it be like supporting the music which it did in into the electric castle it was there was narration that supported it even the john delancey stuff um was supportive it wasn't explicit so much because it gave you information that wasn't within the song but this is just retelling it and even though it has some incredible vocal performances um the story is just not as as strong and it's not as nuanced as some of the some of the previous albums, in my opinion, at least. That being said, because it's Arion, it still leaps and bounds better and more complete and coherent than most other albums out there. Because it's on a level of production and musical talent that most bands can't even hope to achieve. The closest band I can even like compare it to would be like dream theater in terms of of technical skill i know there are some incredible prog bands out there um but i i go with dream theater because dream theater came out with the astonishing which was another incredibly long um epic story based album but the difference here is that arjen is fucking basically doing all the instrumentals himself the only one he doesn't really do is the drumming and for that we got to give it up to ed warby who has been his drummer um, on and off for like the last 20 years. Basically, all those albums I just listed, I had like one fucking drummer, except for Transitus, which had a different drummer. Um, and Ed Warby is quite the drummer. It is, it is, I mean, if you listen to this stuff, it should not come as a surprise to anybody why I love it so much. It is, it is prog metal. It is story driven. I love these albums so goddamn much. I'm building a fucking D&D campaign around the entire thing. And it's enormous, and it's a huge scale, and it's taking me forever, but I'm trying, and I'm doing it. Um, and it's fucking rad. So, that's, that's, I, I wanted to go on a little bit of a soapbox for, for my, my current all-time favorite band. Actually, my all-time favorite band is Great Big C, but this band is fucking phenomenal. And you absolutely must listen to them. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up cast. Hope you all had a very good week. Um, I'm doing okay. A little sleepy, a little sniffly, but hey, you know what? That's because it's fucking freezing outside, and uh, apparently it's supposed to snow today, so that's exciting. Um, I hope you all have a tremendous week going forward, and I will see you all next week for another episode of The Going Up Cost. Have a good one, everyone.